This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And I'm game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this, our inaugural episode, include... Ken's new role-playing game, Knight's Black Agents. Robin's trip to the Continuum Gaming Convention in Leicester, England. The role of the GM in contemporary game design. And the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. segment today is an ongoing segment, or will be ongoing once we do more than one of these, uh, called Among My Many Hats. And this is a segment when either Ken or I talk about one of our ongoing projects and plug it blatantly, as opposed to all the covert plugs that will be sneakily salted through all of our other segments. And uh, for this first segment, I thought we would talk about uh, Ken's new game, Knight's Black Agents. Uh, It's a gumshoe game, and I've had the pleasure to uh, look at it as is my want as the gumshoe poobah as it were and uh, I was uh, happy to see some people actually running it at uh, Continuum uh, convention I was out on this weekend which of which we will speak more anon but first Ken uh, why don't you give us the quick pitch on what Knight's Black Agents is uh, Knight's Black Agents uh, in the shortest possible elevator form is Jason Bourne versus Dracula uh, it's a game of burned spies, uh, or, uh, guys who've gotten out of the game for one reason or another who discover that vampires exist and they hunt them down and, uh, kill them or be killed. It is, uh, the slightly longer elevator pitch for people who've seen the Bourne movies is the Bourne trilogy if Treadstone were vampires. Uh, fundamentally, it's a game of, uh, I call it a vampire spy thriller. Uh, it ideally has all of those components to it. Uh, very much in the uh, post-9-11, uh, post-21st century uh, idiom of uh, spy action. Uh, so a, a ideally a gritty facade of realism over the fact that you are hunting and killing vampires. So great fun for, as far as I can tell, pretty much anyone. And uh, this, as opposed to our sort of recent trend of moony emo vampires, of vampires as romantic objects, you're going back to the original Bram Stoker conception of vampires as assholes. Right, yeah, vampires as um, uh, suspect jerks of uh, some illegitimate type who deserve a good killing, which is certainly um, uh, a hardy perennial, but has been more um, uh, observed in the breach recently in terms of vampires. Although I suppose you can kill uh, moony emo vampires, it's just not as challenging. Or or the objective is not necessarily to, uh, to kill them, but to marry them. Um, yeah. So you're famous for the uh, depth of research that you devote to all of your projects, and of course the vast basement layer full of books. Uh, you had two directions to research in this one, both uh, vampires and spy thrillers. So uh, what did you discover in your uh, research, or what directions did your research take you? Well, uh, I figured that I knew uh, vampires pretty well. Um, I've been uh, reading vampire stuff you know, since childhood. Spy thrillers, I needed. I knew that I needed to get a handle on that. Uh, not that I haven't been watching those and reading those since childhood, but since the core of gumshoe is genre emulation, you can't really do a proper gumshoe game until you see what the core of the genre is. And fortunately, uh, the thriller, uh, amongst its many virtues, is that it's not a particularly complex genre or not a particularly complex structure. So it didn't take very many reviewings of the Bourne trilogy and many rereadings of thriller classics before the basic rhythm of the thriller uh, obtains, which is 
that you get information which leads you into danger, and the reward for that danger is more information. And that cycle continues until the danger is so big or so urgent that you have to have the final climactic boss fight, and that ends the thriller. Uh, sometimes it ends, you know, like a good old 1950s science fiction movie with a question mark and the bad guy crawling out of the ruined volcano base. And sometimes it ends on a, uh, on a more of a diminuendo, uh, your, your, your born movies, for example, the climax is always an emotional climax. It's very seldom an actual boss fight. It's a, it's a confrontation, um, uh, that, uh, provides some sort of emotional catharsis, but either way it is, that's, that's the structure of the thriller. And that was finding that relatively early. Uh, meant that I could sort of figure out how to turn the gumshoe investigative model uh, on, basically put it on fast forward and uh, uh, solve the, um, what they call the, uh, the thriller is the mystery in which the audience knows who did it uh, problem and uh, work out a way to have the audience know who did it simultaneously while not knowing the answer to the mystery, which turns out to be vampires. Right, and and there, that's sort of the higher level mystery, and also the lower level mystery in a thriller is often not so much uh, what is going on or who is after me as such as much as how do I get out of this? Right, how do I get out of this? How do I stop them? Uh, what exactly is their evil plan besides to apparently re- reproduce everyone in a series of European capitals with an assassin, which uh, is pretty much the standard operating procedure that you go to an exotic location, and sure enough, the thriller, the bad guys have a a node there, an agent, uh, or a uh, ongoing activity that you need to thwart. And that, of course, makes it perfect for uh, gumshoe, because gumshoe is you go to a place, there is a problem uh, that needs investigation, and then it needs shooting. And that is, you know, that, that's a perfect model for a thriller. Uh, one of the little interesting rules discoveries we made uh, along the way, maybe not even in Night's Black Agents, but in the uh, adventure book, uh, which you and Gareth uh, writer Hanrahan worked on together. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that, first of all. Uh, the adventure book is called uh, The Zalazhny Quartet. Uh, Zalazhny is a Russian uh, form of the undead, uh, sort of half-ghoul, half-vampire um, that I... Uh, well, first of all, the Russian mafia is, as I say, the connective joint in all uh, postmodern conspiracy theories, because it really is everywhere, and it has billions and billions of dollars of untraceable cash, and um, uh, hulking uh, former Spetsnaz and former Afghan war veteran type uh, thugs that uh, go around and put people in the, um, uh, you know, Thames or whatnot. So uh, you begin with the Russian mafia, so you look for a Russian vampire, and that's the Zalazhny. The quartet is four adventures, uh, which in uh, a sort of a tip of the hat to the old massive Nilathotep uh, campaign for Call of Cthulhu, you can run in any order, and all of them contain clues that lead to another adventure in the in the quartet, or rather to any other adventure in the quartet. Um, there's sort of the order in which we designed them and wrote them, so there's uh, the suggested order if you are just stuck, but uh, you know, you start them off in any of these adventures that fit into your ongoing campaign, and you can uncover this uh, this node. And it will be, you know, I, we hope a great fun and a good way to introduce the, uh, the, the line to people and the, and the potential of it in much the same way that, uh, Gareth's, uh, and yours, um, Hard Rock 7 introduced, uh, Ashen Stars to people last year. Uh, that's actually Dead Rock 7. Dead Rock 7. Uh, Hard Rock 7 is our upcoming adventure where you, uh, 
try and figure out why your crappy order of hamburgs and fries is late at the uh, rock and roll themed uh, chain restaurant. And maybe it was for you instead of being uh, space going lasers, our guys who are trying to maintain a memorabilia restaurant in a world where no one can even remember what the last war was, much less what this guy's guitar means. Yes, but they do still all remember the chords to uh, uh, smoke on the water. Well, some um, things so can never one die. One of the things that we discovered while working on uh, the Zelazny Quartet is a solution to the classic role-playing problem of the players not knowing when to bug out. Because, of course, in a spy thriller, there's lots of times when the correct decision when you encounter lethal force is to turn around and run away. But as player characters, uh, despite every role-playing game from D&D on, uh, encouraging the characters to sometimes run away players really hate to do that, and they sort of convince themselves that if there is a a group of enemies with stats that they encounter, that they are obligated to fight them. And so we were able to discover that if you use one of the uh, gumshoe abilities, and it would be a different ability depending on the situation, you can then uh, just have the GM tell them this, as an expert in... uh, military material, you can tell that you were way outgunned, and the only solution here is to turn tail and run. So you can have a way that directs the players in the correct uh, uh, direction, gives them the right choice to make in a situation that's set up so that they shouldn't be able to overcome them with force of arms, and uh, still preserve the uh, feeling that you are doing this because you're an expert in this field, rather than just simply being a, a coward or taking a direct, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge hint from the uh, GM. Yeah, there's a similar thing that happens in a number of uh, action movies where, um, uh, for example, in, in the second Die Hard, where John McClane recognizes uh, that the thing is an ambush and he uh, and he tries to warn the guys to get out. And, of course, they get slaughtered by um, uh, the mercenaries. And, you know, while... You know, just objectively, John McClane is sitting there being useless and not doing anything. Uh, narratively, he's been an, uh, an interesting, in- involved character and has been uh, victorious by recognizing that there was no victory present in this scene. So I, th- I think it's a similar effect that, you know, various Hollywood screenwriters have done just because they have to get to act four without killing their hero. Um, and I, I, I do think that it was sort of a problem that was, uh, the solution was inherent in Gumshoe and it was just, we had to wait until, um, in Trail of Cthulhu, for example, it's very easy to signal that this is something you need to run away from. Right. It's almost any creature you can possibly meet in the game. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, you, you see a tentacle come up onto the shore, then you see five more. Okay, well, we're leaving then. Yes, and in fact, in, in Trail of Cthulhu and in Fear Itself before it, we have the opposite uh, problem where we had to create drives in order to make sure that mm-hmm. there are characters who would get into some sort of trouble occasionally as opposed to doing the... Uh, smart but an interesting thing of running away from everybody. Right, yeah, the, uh, moving to San Diego like um, uh, the guy in um, Whisper in Darkness wants to do all the time. <laughs> he keeps writing back to, to I, re- I reread it recently, the Lovecraft narrator character. Uh, he's, he keeps talking about how hard it is to sell his farm in Vermont because uh, he just needs to get out and go to California to live with his son. And it's like, dude, surely recouping your your investment in your farm is not the crucial problem for you at this point. <laughs> Tales of real estate horror. Well, it, it is that flinty New England uh, thrift, I guess, that uh, yeah. keeps him battling the mythos. And, and Lovecraft, of course, does his his standard trick in Whisperer of uh, 
because the guy is believes things the, the same way that Lovecraft does, he therefore suffers and dies for it. You know, it's, it's I, I can't leave my my you know, perfect hometown where I've my family's had roots for centuries. It's like no, you pretty much can if you're surrounded by space mushrooms that want to eat you. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, I think we've completed this segment. Fantastic. This next ongoing segment, which uh, begins its going on at this moment, is travel advisory, in which uh, we attempt uh, to wring the every morsel of joy out of our various foreign travels by telling each other uh, about them. And of course, it will be, have added pecans if one of us did not go. And this is the case with Continuum in Leicester, England, where Robin got uh, another uh, punch on his uh, go to England card. Uh, leaving me fuming on the other side of the Atlantic. So, Robin, uh, how awesome was Continuum, and how uh, brokenhearted am I to have missed it? You are very brokenhearted to have missed uh, what I think is a signal sign of the ongoing health of the role-playing hobby. Because, as you know, uh, the role-playing hobby has been uh, dying ever since it was invented, even during its periods of explosive growth. And you can sort of get the sense of uh, optimism or pessimism from a role-playing crowd by observing them over many years. And the folks who make up the core of the organizers and the attendees at uh, Continuum, uh, which began 20 years ago as Convulsion, uh, have sort of mirrored over the years the uh, their sense of, of hope for the hobby and its growth. And this was a very hopeful edition of Continuum. Uh, first of all, they were uh, sold out. It's one of those shows that uh, caps its attendance, uh, in this case around 250 people, so you have to register in advance, and if you're slow off the mark, uh, you don't get to go. Uh, their facilities uh, are sort of limited at 250, and also they really want to keep its small, intimate focus, and its focus on uh, tabletop, first of all, uh, which is very refreshing because a lot of the other uh, conventions have kind of uh, let tabletop be its own uh, thing to the side as other bigger uh, genres of game have sort of come along to replace it. Uh, but this is all about tabletop and all about uh, what uh, is called in the UK the free form. Uh, we on uh, colonial shores might think of it as a LARP, uh, but uh, this is sort of the non-boffer uh, characterization and costume and uh, Machiavellian intrigue uh, style of games. And they uh, do it with a huge a bunch of people, around 40 people. There were three free forms this year, and uh, it's the same crowd doing it. So you might have your uh, Star Trek uniform on the first night and your uh, uh, papal robes uh, the last night. And I forget what the third free form is, but uh, you see a really interesting dynamic after a free form breaks up because the, the pub is very quiet, and then everyone shows up, and then you see people begin to exchange the counter-narrative of what actually happened and trying to piece everything together and ask each other, you know, what was really going on. So even if you're not in the free form, you get a vicarious version of the, uh, the storyline over beers afterwards. But the main part of the con really is it's, it's tabletop and they do a really good job of uh, getting GMs to run things. They have a great a way of uh, doing the sign-up sheets so that they're all staggered and everybody gets a chance to do things. And I was very heartened 
to see a bunch of uh, not only HeroQuest games, HeroQuest, of course, being the uh, storytelling engine that I designed for the world of Glorantha and is now available in a generic form as well, and also a lot of gumshoe games. So there were people already running Knight's Black Agents, for example, as well as Fear Itself and Trail of Cthulhu. Um, uh, that's particularly gratifying in the case of uh, something like Knight's Black Agents, because I believe that um, uh, this convention began as, as like tentacles in Germany as, as uh, very Cthulhu focused, right? And then it sort of has expanded out from that center. Yeah, it's, I would say it's actually Chaosium focused and Chaosium and uh, the Chaosium intellectual diaspora. So uh, there's a huge contingent of Glorantha fans there. And they were very excited to know uh, the plans of Moon Design, which is the company that is now doing not only HeroQuest, but RuneQuest 6. Uh, right. To, yeah, I saw that. Um, and a lot of ooing and awing was centered around uh, the books they're finally putting out that uh, kind of deliver on uh, the Greg Stafford, who's the cr- creator of Clarentha, things that he's wanted to get done for years. So they're finally bringing out the big one-volume beautiful doorstop edition called the Guide to Glorantha, which will provide in-depth information not only on sort of the main cultures that we've seen dealt with again and again, the sort of pseudo-Celtic tribal Orlanthi and the uh, ancient, sophisticated, mystical lunars, but all of these other cultures that have sort of been uh, all on the periphery of that main conflict before. And uh, there's a the art is just incredibly gorgeous. Uh, they're doing a really interesting business strategy at Moon Design, which is they're using a sort of a windowed release pattern where they, uh, first of all, release the book to their core devoted fans to buy directly from them via their website. And of course, the economics of that make possible what otherwise would not have been possible during the era when there was only the three-tier distribution model, because this allows them to make full cover price on what are kind of very lavish uh, uh, and expensive books. Well, I mean, it, it, it was possible because uh, people like Ashtree Press and Tantalus Press and Tartarus Press in the uh, small uh, press horror genre have been doing it for forever. Uh, if you you know were a subscriber to Ashtree or you were on their mailing list, they'd send around a thing and say, we're going to put everything M.R. James ever wrote together between two covers and we're going to charge you know 150 bucks for it and sign up now if you want one. Um, and I mean that that model uh, predates the, uh, the the internet by by you know some time. It's just that uh, with the internet, it, it works uh, faster and better, I guess. Right, and I think with gaming, there's also the thought that you want to be able to bring in new gamers, right? That you, uh, if you're reading fiction, uh, that's not a collaborative experience, or that's not an experience that requires a bunch of people to all show up at your house every night. And uh, what they're able to do is is use this direct sales model, but then they're going to have a second window where, in partnership with Cubicle 7, Cubicle 7 will pick up the cost of a second print run later on down the line after the core fans have already uh, paid 100% of cover. They will then uh, issue that again in a second window where it then goes out to hobby gaming outlets, and that will allow people who are casually interested in Clorantha or can become casually interested in Clorantha to pick up the stuff on store shelves. So finally, uh, this year, for example, at Gen Con, Moon Design is going to actually uh, have a chunk of booth space. And so now when people come up to me at the Pelgrane table and ask where they can buy HeroQuest, I can point them to an actual booth. So that's very exciting to see 
them being able to, to leverage what was an insular way of reaching their fans now into a way of sort of expanding outwards from there. The most shockingly exciting thing that they had, though, were they're doing their giant map of Glorantha that is based on Greg's original maps, which are now written on, uh, were drawn on these incredibly f- now flimsy pieces of paper that have all these weird eccentric joins together. And then Greg has been drawing on uh, transparent overlays on top of them. And, and there's an incredible level of detail. He's got contour lines and weather patterns and um, mystical climactic conditions. And there's maps of the, you know, the extent of Orlant's influence over the, uh, over the world of Glorantha. And uh, they're making in uh, uh, Photoshop, uh, a guy named Colin Driver is doing the cartography for this. And I uh, asked him at the pub one night uh, the simple question, what tools are you using to create this map? And I got a brilliantly entertaining half-hour rant on the complexity <laughs> of assembling <laughs> this uh, map because even like the indivi- they're doing individual tree placement because they don't want to have... Uh, and any hint of a pattern uh, being shown. And so it's really quite a, a stunning thing, and it can zoom in and zoom out, and you get a sense of all of the parts of this huge, complicated world all being connected to one another, where you used to think of them as being separate because they would, you know, each region would appear in a separate page in a rule book, and now you will have this map at the end of the day that it will not only be printed as plates in the book, but that you'll be able to you know, get a electronic version of it and zoom around in it and move up and down to various levels of detail. And the final goal is to do a 3D version and do like an app so that you can zoom around in Glorantha as you could uh, in or as you can in Google Maps. And so the there are all sorts of things that Glorantha fans have dreamed of uh, since the heyday of RuneQuest in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. But that's a dream that you couldn't have even have conceived of. And the idea that that is coming is uh, really quite astounding. Yeah, um, I think that uh, the, the big news uh, for me, and I've gone to a Glorantha convention in uh, Chicago once with Greg as the guest, and it was mostly just to see Greg. And it was a very interesting experience being the mundane at a, at a gaming convention. I mean, I, I love uh, Greg's work, and I respect Glorantha mostly as a product of Greg, and not. I, I've, I've never run a game in Glorantha. I haven't read the Glorantha novels. I am, I am a, um, uh, I'm the guy at the Star Trek convention who knows Kirk from Spock, but is pretty much otherwise completely mystified as to what's going on. So it it was it was great fun on that, uh, on that uh, front. And then um, the other thing that came out of Convulsion. Uh, Continuum. What the hell is it called? Um, it was originally called Convulsion. It's gone through a bunch of different name changes over the years, and it's now called Continuum. And that right. betokens the uh, true gamer's disregard for branding. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, the uh, the big news out of Continuum for me was the, uh, the the presentation of Call of Cthulhu Seventh Edition. But I or the the two designers on Seventh Edition, the the where we're at now in our thinking uh, panel. But I suspect that you have cleverly um, uh, uh, filled uh, our segment with uh, discussions of uh, Hero Quest, which is a worthy uh, goal. And so we will have to talk about New Call of Cthulhu in a future uh, segment of, uh, of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Uh, indeed, it deserves its own segment. Uh, before we move on, I would also uh, like to just note that the 
perennial state of the games industry panel has an interesting new thing that you have to talk about. And we can talk about this later in depth, but the topic of the day, of course, becomes Kickstarter and where we're going with that. And it's really a sign of the incredible impact that this new uh, funding mechanism has had on our hobby that now it is the, the dominant issue. And it will be interesting to, to follow the evolution of that from year to year, from state of the gaming panel to state of the gaming panel, and see where we trace the trajectory of that, whether it keeps going up and up, or if the you know two years we'll, doing, we'll be doing the post-mortem for Kickstarter. Uh, but now we're sort of in a phase of uh, incredible opportunity leavened uh, with uh, the inevitable bit of caution. Uh, Jeff Richard of Moon Design, uh, before he became a full-time uh, game publisher, was a practicing lawyer. And uh, his observation was that uh, Kickstarter is uh, an incipient primordial ooze, uh, my words, not his, of lawyerly opportunity. And <laughs> we will reach a point where uh, something high profile will fail, where people will put a lot of money into it. And uh, then the uh, sharks with their uh, drag away uh, briefcases on rollers full of legal papers will, uh, will show up. So that will be an interesting thing to follow is the whole idea of... Uh, legal liability when uh, things that people fund do not actually happen. Yes, well, um, fortunately, that probably won't happen in the gaming segment since uh, the first law of uh, litigation is don't sue people with no money. <laughs> that, that is an important law. And also, we tend to protect ourselves by treating it more as kick finisher than Kickstarter, where right, in our yeah, sector you're expected to have some evidence that you've already put in your sweat equity and ideally something that you can deliver, presumably mostly in an electronic form, right away. And that, I think, is much different than the sort of notional, I have this idea to create a perpetual motion machine that makes brownies, and here's my rough napkin sketch. I would like, a, you know, half a million dollars. So the, the odds of any of us producing something that uh, just turns out to be complete vaporware is greater than zero, but uh, less than it might be in other categories. Right. And I think before we leave travel advisory, um, I saw from your blog that you went to uh, the Sone Museum in London, and which is one of the few places that I have beaten you to, I think. And so uh, what? Uh, how awesome is the Sone? The, the Sone Museum, for those who do not know, is the remaining collection of the architect John Sone, who worked in the uh, last half of the 1700s and the first half of the 1800s and produced... Uh, uh, monumental architecture, uh, the, uh, including the Bank of England building, which was is no longer his. It was remade by another uh, architect in the early part of this century. He was sort of maybe the Daniel Liebeskind of his era. He planned, uh, he favored the monumental, and part of his collection is uh, he's got this room f uh, full of sliding panels where his vast art collection and all of these uh, projection designs, or I guess concept designs, that he produced for himself that would have remodeled uh, London into a massive new Rome are basically all stored in one tiny little room. Because the thing about this is it's basically two uh, s small sort of row houses together, uh, originally his home and his office. You can see the one room that uh, he probably uh, promised his wife would have been kept clear of junk. <laughs> And then everything else is just packed to the rafters with stuff. So, you know, here, here, this one room, you've got uh, a Canaletto, you've got a Turner, you've got a Watteau, you've got, uh, I think the 
Hogarth's rake's progress in its entirety, and you can't even see all of it. Uh, it would take you hours just to, uh, were you permitted to do so, to flip and slide all the things that he has stored in this tiny space. And the rest of it is filled with the uh, bric-a-brac of the sort of height of the Grand Tour and uh, collector mania in which he uh, collected, perhaps sometimes in quotation marks, uh, artifacts from uh, Greece and Rome and Egypt and uh, even a little bit of uh, uh, China and, and Peru. Uh, he's got the uh, alabaster sarcophagus of Seti I down in the basement, slowly corroding in the London air. And uh, I guess it's sort of uh, the way of creative people today where it's, uh, it, it's okay that I held on to this. It's just for reference. That's right. Yes, it's um uh, like um uh, the books that the University of Chicago Library so far has not bothered to ask for back. So obviously they're not using them. Right. Exactly. Um. So it, it's uh not only a fascinating sort of throwback to an older era of presentation because of course now in a modern museum each artifact would be carefully, you know, they would just select the few most impressive things and there'd be a little informational card next to everything. But here it's sort of his original presentation. In fact, there restoring it to an even more original state. And so you see this, uh, uh, that it's not just in the 21st century that we're oppressed by all of the junk that we collect, but uh, he got so much stuff that it completely overwhelmed him, and he uh, left it to history uh, as both uh, an awesome place to poke around in and perhaps an object lesson in getting rid of your stuff. I, I don't know. I take the opposite thing. When I was at the Sony, it was an object lesson that I have not even begun to fill my house with stuff. <laughs> That there, there was a, there's a mark to shoot for. That I'm, I'm, I'm very, very light on mummy sarcophaguses, for example. It's true. I, I wish I had not uh, let those earlier sarcophagi go. And now we come to the time on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, where you, the listener, ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin, what do you see as the role of the GM in contemporary role-playing game design? And this question comes to us from Robert Scott Martin. So, uh, Robin, uh, what do you see as the role of the GM in contemporary role-playing game design? I think the exciting thing about contemporary role-playing game design is there's no longer, uh, if there ever was, one answer for everything. So that you've got uh, both a return to the old school, we were at sort of the height of the old school movement, which is all about uh, the mediation between a very powerful traditional uh, DM and the players, where it's the uh, sort of a process of verbal question and answer that establishes the imaginative realm that you all operate in, uh, to GMless story games like uh, Fiasco, and everything in between on the continuum. So there isn't one direction we're going in, but because we're in a uh, stage of late development of the form, uh, hopefully not the final stage of development, uh, we've got uh, the role of GM is just another option that you can start with as you uh, put together your game design goals for whatever game you're designing. And so you can uh, don't necessarily just have to go from one set of assumptions, but you can tailor the role of the GM to whatever uh, experience you want the players and, and of course, the, the GM herself to have as well. And, and another part of it is it's not um, that it's not even just the one-dimensional question, will there be a GM, won't there be a GM? There's the question of, 
what degree the GM is driving uh, the story, what kind of creative input the players have uh, in, to edit the setting, to edit the plot, to uh, af- affect things, move things around, to what extent, and this is the thing that as a GM I like best, is to be surprised, uh, what kind of tools are being put into the hands of the players to more effectively and more thoroughly surprise the GM. And then sort of simultaneous with that development, there is a really strong feeling from a lot of the small press indie game designs that uh, the GM will just screw it up if you give them too much power because the designer has a vision for how the game should be run. And so the designer in many of these games is the GM, and the GM is more the sort of the, the interpreter of the designer's goal. I mean, you look at something like The Mountain Witch or Contender or a lot of these really terrific games that are designed to um, uh, play out one story arc, uh, and the GM sort of uh, is just there to roll with the player's input and not to design the story arc, uh, because the story arc has been designed, thank you very much, by the game designer. So I think that there's been a very interesting set of questions that's being asked now about about original intent in game design. I mean, back in the in the day of St. Dave and St. Gary, um, Gary could fume at you all he wanted in the pages of the dragon about what he meant when he said it, but no one, I think, ever took those seriously. And nowadays, uh, in our you know advanced modern era, if uh, Luke Crane wants you to uh, play uh, Burning Empires a certain way, you will, by God, play Burning Empires that way, or um, uh, you will know about it. And so there's a there, there's kind of an interesting um, shift, it, it, which obviously, in the hands of a good designer, is is, is a great. Um, uh, liberatory thing for the GM because they can be part of this ongoing story in a way that they really couldn't back when they were also uh, dressing the set and naming all the NPCs and doing all the other, you know, scut work that uh, the GMs have to do. And and obviously in the hands of a bad designer, it just becomes an experience of everyone reading the GM's ba- the designer's bad novel together. Yeah, it's a shift of uh, that sort of relates to the specificity of what the game is trying to do. And the broader the experience, the more freedom uh, or responsibility, depending on which way you want to look at it, the uh, GM has to take in order to uh, translate uh, into an actual specific ga- uh, game experience. So if you've got something like uh, The Mountain Witch, where a particular story is being told and the object is not only to convey that, but there's a whole, it's a completely packaged experience of which you're the facilitator as opposed to what is sort of on the opposite end of things, the you-can-do-anything model, uh, where uh, the rule set is just sort of a tool for the, uh, for the group, and it's up to them to make it into a specific experience. Uh, one of the uh, things that I found interesting about running Hillfolk, which is my new uh, game using my new drama system rules, is that uh, it does not eliminate the GM, but it... Uh, pulls back on the number and type of interventions that the GM can make into the storyline, where you have basically just as much power as any one individual uh, player at the table, and you have the same uh, power to influence the narrative as any one other person, but you, uh, unlike all the players, are not emotionally identifying in particular with the success or failure of any one character, but instead you're representing, uh, in a way, the satisfaction faction inherent in the entire narrative, or you're perhaps, uh, you're either serving the invisible audience that all of the players together make up, or perhaps even the, uh, the rules of narrative in order to make the story feel like a satisfying, coherent story when you recount it later. And so you'll do things like you'll, uh, 
you may intervene in order to bring a player into the spotlight, to pick up a dropped plot thread, or just to put the characters under additional stress if they're getting a little too lovey-dovey and all getting along in what is supposed to be a game of dramatic conflict. And I found that very exciting, first of all, just because there's no prep work. Uh, it has that surprise value that you talked about where uh, nobody knows where the story is going from, you know, even from one round of scenes to the next, let alone to the end of the story. And it preserves that sense of surprise for uh, the GM in a way that it wouldn't if you have a, uh, as you would, for example, in a lot of gumshoe games where there's a mystery that you've worked out the answer to and you're watching the, the player sort of peel away the layers to, to get to that uh, mystery. Um, both of those are valid, fun ways to play, and it's great to be able to switch them up. So now we're reaching another of our soon-to-be-regular and no doubt soon-to-be-beloved segments here on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, and this is where we get Ken uh, in his role as consulting occultist to give us a primer on the various occult uh, movements, people, and ideas in the uh, history of humankind. And I thought we would start out by uh, looking at uh, one of the most famous occult, uh, would you call this a, uh, a movement or an organization? It's the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. So assuming that I know nothing about the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, have not even typed it in on Wikipedia, what is the uh, basic shot to begin with on uh, the Hermetic or Order of the Golden Dawn? The uh, basic shot of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn is that it was uh, sort of uh, by accident, and I think the accident is fundamentally because it simultaneously had Aleister Crowley and William Butler Yeats as members, um, but it accidentally became the most influential uh, approach by uh, the English-speaking world to the general heritage of uh, medieval and early Age of Reason mysticism. And it was part of that great Victorian, uh, everything has to be classified and, and put in, an, in a box uh, spirit. And when you're talking about something like um, uh, the occult philosophies uh, that come out of the, uh, out of the Renaissance and the post-Renaissance era, uh, putting it in a box is going to be more than normally contentious. What it was was a bunch of, uh, of, of middle-class uh, guys who were interested in the occult basically because they'd uh, been reading Edward Bulwer-Lytton's um, uh, uh, exciting occult adventure novels and uh, wanted, you know, fundamentally to, to get to LARP it in their real life uh, to get a, um, a, a thrill that Freemasonry wasn't giving them. They were all Freemasons. They were all members of an earlier group called the Society of Rosicrucians in, in Anglia, uh, SRIA, and um, uh, they thought that if they set up their own uh, club with its own awesome rituals and its own uh, phenomenal uh, understanding of uh, the occult, that it would be even better, and it would be like they were uh, Bulwer-Lytton heroes. And so it's it's basically like if a bunch of guys you know got uh, excited reading Star Trek and decided to build a spaceship in their backyard. And, um, again, if it hadn't been for Aleister Crowley and William Butler Yeats, we'd never hear about these guys. But because it's those two, their spaceship launched. And the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn became hugely influential in sort of the way the English-speaking world, both as writers, as politicians, as uh, mystics and um, uh, seekers of the occult, as, as, you, as you saw or interacted with, uh, the, you know, for lack of a better term, the occult dimension of experience. And they sort of wound up being the guys who set the, uh, the vocabulary, 
um, for that sort of thinking in the West down to the modern age. And there's, I think, two current uh, orders of the Golden Dawn that are probably uh, furiously angry at each other and not speaking in the tradition of the Golden Dawn, as well as a, at least one fascist political party that's called the Golden Dawn um, uh, in Greece. So uh, certainly well done for um, uh, a coroner and a um, uh, guy who hangs out at the British Museum all day, which is who started it. So uh, what would be got up to at a typical uh, conclave of the Hermetic Order? Well, um, it's a secret society, so obviously we only have uh, the substantial number of journals, records, and uh, rituals that were published by various members trying to uh, score points with their imagined foes in the society to go from. But there would be a uh, ceremony similar to a Masonic uh, ceremony where there is the creation of a ritual space and the invocation of various uh, powers and spirits intended to provide a uh, connection to the magical world. And uh, they would engage in this work. Uh, I believe uh, the Golden, uh, Golden Dawn has a, a set liturgy. It's not uh, like a voodoo ceremony where you uh, continue until everyone is uh, exhausted and has had some experience of the of the numinous. I believe that they had a, a, you know, you know, as proper Victorians, they you know had to break for tea or whatever at some point, and so they had to get get on with it. But it was it was an an attempt to you know, like all of these magical societies, to experience magic in your own life. And you know, as long as you're just defining magic as uh, as like uh, Crowley's famous definition, change exerted in um, uh, obedience to will. Well, you can have a magical ceremony anytime you decide to, you know, have a drink of scotch. And uh, Crowley, to his very great credit, uh, says that explicitly in his book. So um, they, the, the, the ceremony would be, you know, they would stand around. They would invoke various syncretic or pseudo-Egyptian entities. Uh, they would have uh, colors and incenses and everything else sort of designed to create that feeling. And uh, ideally, they would they would get that sense of it. But... Um, and then they would uh, probably go down to the bar and argue about whose fault it was that uh, the guys in Paris weren't talking to them or whatever. So uh, did they believe that they were uh, bringing actual magical forces into the world, or did they see this as more of a uh, mystical form of uh, worshipping in a, a non-traditional framework? Well, I, I, there, there was a, a many different uh, sort of takes on it. I think the sort of the, the standard... Um, Understanding, and I think probably most of the Golden Dawn's uh, participants at the time would have believed that what they were doing was engaging in the evocation of actual magical forces, that they were not so much worshiping God in a uh, unusual or unorthodox way, but that they were actually engaging in theurgy, the conjuration of magical forces derived from demigodlike uh, powers that exist in the world. Um, and again, uh, people, uh, you know, scholars of magic and religion have argued for literally, you know, a century and a half over the boundaries between those two experiences. But I think that most Golden Dawn members thought of themselves as magicians first and uh, unorthodox worshippers, uh, if at all, second. Um, uh, obviously, someone like Aleister Crowley, who uh, wanted to join the Golden Dawn, was blackballed by one side of the Golden Dawn and then snuck off to Paris to join the Golden Dawn <laughs> when the guy who voted for him uh, initiated him in secret. He believed that um, magic was the doorway to a proper religion, and so that's why he tried to start his own. Um, but uh, again, I, I think that the average Golden Dawn uh, member, the, the sort of your, your Bram Stokers or your uh, Arthur Mockins or your Algernon Blackwoods, when they showed up, uh, they were probably looking. Uh, they, you know, they were they were halfway between larping Bulwer Lytton and trying to uh, actually conjure an.
And uh, are there uh, particular anecdotes where they believe that they had conjured such a presence, or did they see them? Did they see themselves as successful magicians, or did they see themselves as questing toward a point they never attained? Um, again, uh, depending on whose memoirs you read, you get a bunch of different answers to that question. Uh, certainly, someone like uh, Florence Farr. Uh, absolutely believed that they'd uh, succeeded, that they'd contacted uh, presences. Uh, Crowley believed that he had contacted presences, but that these chuckleheads in the Golden Dawn were doing it wrong. And so if they contacted anything, it was by accident, and uh, that he had transcended their puny, pathetic teachings uh, fairly early. I think that Yates um, sort of fluctuated between believing that they'd succeeded and despairing that they hadn't succeeded over the course of his very long life of experimenting with the occult. I mean, Yates just kept on keeping on even after the Golden Dawn fell apart in the early 20th century. Uh, so, and I'm sure that, you know, Bram Stoker, who at, at probably at most went to one or two meetings, saw it as, you know, great material for an awesome book, but never, you know, believed that there was a um, uh, anything more to it than that. Um, so I, I think it, it depends on your Golden Dawn member. The... Um, it, it becomes very apparent that the sort of the, the head of the Golden Dawn, McGregor Mathers, uh, was very much into it as sort of a personal ego trip. You know, it's it's like I've started chess club, so no one else can join chess club unless I say they can join chess club. And the fact that a lot of the people he knew were vastly better chess players is irrelevant to the question of who gets to run chess club. And I don't know that uh, Mathers um, necessarily, you know, ever had a, a magical experience. He doesn't seem to have been the sort of... Um, a uh, person who who seemed to have been made happy by his involvement in the Golden Dawn, but again, an authentic magical experience doesn't necessarily make you happy. It sort of makes you, uh, at least as far as you know, the the people who claim to have had one uh, report, it sort of makes you terrified and and nervous and uh, and and apparently very prone to backbiting and putting curses on each other. So, uh, which of course you know is what destroyed the Golden Dawn after uh, the the political infighting got too ridiculous and people like Yates, um, who actually had you know. Uh, dressing up in mason robes and summoning Anubis or whatever, uh, decided that they wanted to have their own Golden Dawn where it wasn't uh, as lame as Mathers' Golden Dawn. So, yeah, there's, again, there, it, it's an organization that had, you know, two or three different chapter houses, all of which were at one point or another excommunicating each other, writing each other nasty emails, or not emails, proper mails, and um, uh, in general behaving like every single you know, social clique of nerds that uh, any of our listeners have ever been part of. Well, there's a certain psychology in particular to being the guy who wants to create a movement and then decide who is in the movement and out of the movement. And uh, you don't, it's not just a factor in uh, cult circles. You can, you know, see that in the, the guy who runs the theater company in the 60s. It would be the guy who runs the commune, uh, a figure we'll talk about in later podcasts in reference to a project called Dreamhounds at Paris, Andre Baton, the uh, leader of self-styled leader of the surrealist movement uh, fit that definition where uh, you get a really doctrinaire figure uh, who wants to gather personal power by surrounding himself with a, a group of uh, disciples and he's deciding who is in and who is out and uh, through that uh, the group uh, sort of builds up a level of uh, resentment and uh, either explodes or reforms in other uh, areas. But I should say that, um, you know, the, the Golden Dawn is, uh, from my perspective, it certainly wasn't a waste of time because it provides such a, 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 a it does do that great Victorian uh, thing of systematizing uh, Renaissance occultism into one system. So 
uh, you've now got uh, correspondences where all the various uh, syncretic uh, Gnostic uh, uh, versions of the Egyptian gods all match up to the various constellations of the zodiac, or they match up to different planets, and there's uh, assigned uh, colors and gems and metals and all of the other little bits of, of mysticism so that I don't have to go back and, and, and winkle it out of Agrippa and D and all of these guys. Uh, McGregor, McGregor Mathers and his ilk uh, managed to do all of that job of synthesis for me. So what the Golden Dawn uh, accomplished um, is, is, like I say, it gave uh, Western magicians, or certainly Anglophone Western magicians, a common uh, m- a vocabulary to talk about uh, magical experience and to attempt to sort of you know, provide a baseline magical experience. And for me, what it provides is, you know, a, a wonderful resource for designing or running role-playing games, uh, which I think came to its, its greatest fruition in GURPS Cabal, which I did for Steve Jackson Games, low these many years ago. But, um, and, you know, and surely that was Yates' ultimate aim, was to provide fodder for role-playing games. Yeah, I think there was, there was that, and the, there was achieving um, a numinous Irish uh, supernationality uh, through uh, communion with uh, the fairies. And so between that and role-playing games, I think he pretty much he can mark both of those off as, as successfully accomplished. Uh, so can you expand a bit on the connection between uh, fairies and uh, Irish nationalism? Uh, Yeats, um, like many, many other people, uh, believed that uh, it was an important uh, quality of uh, uh, Irish uh, nationhood and also Scots nationalists believed it about Scots nationhood, Welsh nationalists uh, believed it about Welsh nationhood. Both Cornish nationalists believed it about the Corn uh, Cornish uh, na- nation. Is that their uh, specific spiritual and magical and uh, folk traditions had been stomped on brutally by the hated Assassinac by the English, uh, which, in addition to being historically quite accurate, uh, means that they got to go out and uh, serve the cause of, of national uh, feeling by creating um, uh, or uh, ideally rediscovering. But let's be honest. Uh, creating um <laughs> the uh the, the the sort of the irish myth and the irish uh, uh folk cultural uh belief set that existed before um you know that uh son of a gun oliver cromwell or uh, before that even good queen bess um uh, went out and planted the english boot on uh, the irish neck so thoroughly and so you had people r- racing all over the countryside talking to people who only spoke gaelic and uh recovering their uh, lore, which is part, again, of this whole 19th century urge to sort of find out everything and classify everything and put it all in a book uh, that is so uh, so glorious and delightful and, and possibly the best thing about the 19th century, you know, uh, is this sort of um, encyclopedic urge. But what, what, what the ac- activity was is once you start assembling an Irish national uh, folk myth, you can say that this is ours and it's not the English, and that helps to create a sense of Irish national uh, culture and Irish national belief. So the fairies, of course, are, uh, as practiced in Ireland and to a lesser extent Scotland, are very, uh, very specifically Celtic um, uh, uh, story patterns, Celtic belief patterns, Celtic entities. Uh, And so, although they have parallels, obviously, all over the world, the specific versions of them that come out of Oscar Wilde's uh, mother's uh, researches and some of the other uh, great uh, folklorists that Yeats sort of synthesized and put in tremendous uh, uh, form in his collections of Irish lore, that he was doing it very explicitly as a sort of ideological groundwork for Irish nationalism, just like we have in America, the you know stories of uh, Paul Revere and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln as as our founding stories, our founding myths. And I'm sure in Canada you have that that one beaver that invented the cruller in his igloo or whatever it is you have up there. 
um, yep. that, um, uh, that, that serve as the, as the core of Canadian uh, nationhood. Uh, and so Yates uh, believed. We, we had a magical meeting where people talked about responsible government. <laughs> well, that's how you know it must. It couldn't only have happened in the magical land of Canada. Exactly. Um, but uh, but but Yates believed uh, that uh, the fairies, the, the, the elves, the the she, uh, the Tuatha de Danann, however you want to put them, uh, were sort of the embodiments of this Irish mystical perfect golden age past, and that if they are real that they absolutely should be uh, communed with by all true sons of ire, and that even if they're uh, imaginary, which I suppose he went through in his various swings of, of faith and doubt, um, that they serve a, a fundamental purpose in knitting together an Irish national mythology that is different and better than all other people's national mythologies. So does this uh, connection between the construction of a national myth and occultism explain why we now have a Greek fascist party called the Golden Dawn. Well, the trouble with um, the Greek, well, the trouble with them besides that they're fascists is <laughs> yeah, that's, that... That's issue number one. I, I don't know, um, I, I, I don't speak Greek, I don't read Greek, um, and so I have not read any of their source material, also because reading fascism is not something that I do for fun in this advanced stage of my life. Uh, so... I, I've looked at the, the covers of the Golden Dawn magazine that this guy published way back in the, in the early uh, 80s or late 70s when he got out of prison, um, which is always a good sign. You know, you get out of prison, you start publishing an occult magazine. That's, that never goes wrong. But, um, but the, the covers very much have Golden Dawn iconography on them, uh, uh, more in common, I think, with the German version of this uh, national folk spirit than the uh, specifically English one. Well, if, if you're going for fascism, <laughs> you yeah. want to go to Wellspring there. Yeah, yeah you do want to you, you do want to get the pure, uh, no pun intended, the pure stuff. But uh, the Golden Dawn is so influential that I think that the that's why when you're looking for something that is going to be sending those signals of occult national renewal, you pick Golden Dawn, even though obviously, you know, the um, there, there was no specific connection between uh, McGregor Mathers or even Aleister Crowley and, and Greek national thought. I think Greece and England have shared a sort of national poetic myth, uh, at least back to Byron and probably, you know, back to, um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the British deciding that they were the uh, last uh, sons of Troy. So there's a, there's a very strong connection, I suspect, between, um, the, the, the Greek, um, uh, pseudo intelligentsia and the English pseudo intelligentsia on this level as well. But I don't know specifically that this thug in charge of the, the Greek Golden Dawn is an occultist or even that he believes in any of this stuff. But um, he certainly, um, like Adolf, knows a, a good logo when he sees one. So you mentioned uh, earlier that the, uh, this is a great work, of, that the Golden Dawn was a great work of sort of occult taxonomy of putting things together into a system which is now accessible. Um, and for the purposes of role-playing game design, it's uh, not necessary or perhaps even desirable that this be historically accurate. But how would you uh, rate them as historians, and to what extent were they makers of an interesting myth? Well, I think that uh, um, you can look at some of the things that they built up, and uh, I, I think that they're... I mean, again, I really respond to people like Mathers and Crowley as a game designer. I mean, they're looking at this great... Uh, undifferentiated mass of stuff, which is the same thing that Agrippa was doing when he writes uh, the books of occult philosophy. He's looking at all of medieval occultism and saying, well, this is just ridiculous. I'm going to systematize it. And after, you know, four centuries after Agrippa, someone synthesizes the synthesis. And so if you go back and you read uh, the original Agrippa, there's stuff in there that obviously gets dropped out. 
But again, the Golden Dawn is not explicitly historians. What they are is they're attempting to sort of um, come up with the best possible set of LARP rules. And um, th- on that f- front, they, they succeeded admirably. And they certainly, I don't think that if you read um, the various Golden Dawn books uh, that they wrote, that you're going to get a, any more flawed an understanding of Agrippa than you're going to get by reading any other uh, 20th century source on Agrippa. They had their perspective, and their perspective, since it involved the actual belief in the occult, is in some ways more valid than the perspective of some guy um, uh, you know, at uh, University of South Carolina or wherever, uh, writing a thesis on it for tenure. So the degree to which their research is good, to some extent, they're prisoners of their own time period. I mean, Mather's translations of the various magical grimoire have been uh, roundly and in many cases, I think, justly criticized by other guys who translate grimoires later. But some of that is just Mather's was only working from one or two manuscripts. And these guys have access, in the case of the of the um, uh, Key of Solomon, to literally 150 possible manuscripts from which to uh, draw um, uh, the text. So, um, you know, for, for what he was doing and given that he was not, you know, actually trained to do any of it, uh, I think that they did a pretty good job, but it certainly, you know, if you are really concerned with what, um, uh, Renaissance magic looked like, uh, the Golden Dawn is a starting place, not a stopping place. And speaking of stopping places, I guess this is as good a place as any to bring us to the end of our inaugural episode of Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Ken, I think we can agree that we talked about some stuff. I think that stuff was indeed talked about and by Ken and Robin even. So we have fulfilled that charter uh, established by those placid, well-behaved beavers back in the uh, early days of the Confederation. Uh, So if you want to pose a question to uh, ask Ken and Robin, you can grab us at either of our uh, Twitters. I'm at Robin D. Laws. And I'm at Kenneth Height. And uh, in the days to come, we'll be getting our uh, podcast website going, so you'll also be able to leave... Uh, questions and comments and uh, epistles of admiration uh, on the comments there. And so uh, thanks everybody for listening and we'll be back soon with another episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. (laughs) 